Given the constant mantra of the mainstream media, you'd be forgiven if you believed that all the court challenges to the November election are done and gone. In fact, there are 30 of them still outstanding, and we're going to speak today with a law professor who has read most of the 81 cases that challenged the 2020 election result. Meanwhile, the China Communist Party has imposed harsh new lockdowns on tens of millions of China's citizens, and the party is claiming that the new spread of COVID is coming from American and European Catholic priests. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Before we begin, let me remind you to go direct to lifesitenews.com and sign up there on the top right-hand side for our email under the subscribe button. You cannot reach us in many ways anymore because we're being deplatformed everywhere. YouTube has already kicked us off for two weeks from our main channel. Both of our channels on Twitter have been suspended and Facebook is cutting us back majorly. You need to go direct to lifesitenews.com to stay in touch and keep up on the latest news. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. LifeSite's Martin Burger reports that former prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, Cardinal Gerhard Müller, has warned that the United States government under President Joe Biden, and I quote, with its concentrated political, media, and economic power, is at the forefront of the most subtly brutal campaign in the last 100 years to de-Christianize Western culture, end quote. Cardinal Müller recounted before explaining that in his opinion, and I quote, individual and social ethics take precedence over politics. The line is crossed where faith and morality are offset against political calculations. He continued, I cannot support a pro-abortion politician because he builds social housing and because of the relative good I would have to accept the absolute evil, end quote. You'll also read, at LifeSite News, and you really have to check out uh, the story by Michael Haynes, which reports that China's Communist Party, the officials in it, are actually blaming Chinese Catholics for new harsh lockdowns. Supposedly, these lockdowns are necessitated by an apparent resurgence of COVID-19 cases near Beijing. A local priest described the move as being like the times of Emperor Nero. A reported uptick in the positive cases of COVID-19 in Hebei province near Beijing has resulted in the area being put under very stringent lockdown. As of January 6th, more than 22 million people have now been ordered to remain at home. The province's capital also placed its 11 million inhabitants in isolation with uh, travel in and out of the city banned completely. Posts on social media platforms, MeWe and Weibo, began spreading accusations against Catholics causing the recent cases, uh, as if they were causing them. The rumors also claimed that a number of European and American priests came to participate in the religious ceremonies without taking any preventative measures, bringing the virus with them. And these were then reported and by Chinese officials as well. 
Meanwhile, Duncan Schroeder of Newsbusters reports that last week CNN's Chris Como and the Don Le- and uh, commentator Don Lemon spoke about the need to deprogram Americans on the right. Have a look at this. You know, Chris, the right doesn't like it when you say people need to be de- deprogrammed. You know that, right? Deprogrammed? Yeah, we're talking about the QAnon people and the conspiracy theorist people. They yeah, don't. you know, I feel like uh, I'm missing something here um, because I know what QAnon is and I, I know what their reach is online. I am not as worried about the duped as I am about the diabolical. The Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, these other true extremist groups that have membership, uh, that have, you know, these mantras and mottos and these mechanisms for change that is violent. Uh, I'm worried about them. Uh, There is true domestic terror capability, and Trump unleashed the Kraken. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't just go away because he did. Yeah. Well, and but also the it doesn't just go away because a lot of the people who enabled them are still in power. They're still Mm -hmm. in Congress. They're still in the Senate. Um, They're still people of power who even beyond politics are people in the media who still enable them, who still uh, capitalize on the conspiracy theories to get them going, to continue to get them to watch uh, their programs. I mean, look at what's happening with conservative media. There's a whole uh, shift, right? The, the tectonic shift that's happening there because people need to go and get, you know, pure conspiracy theories. This channel isn't giving me enough co- pure conspiracy theories. I need to go to the next one. And, until, and then they're going to continue to go to the next one. And so I think it's just a, it's a vicious cycle. They just Let keep them going. eat their own. Yeah, and that's, that's what will happen. Anger has an insatiable appetite. And before we get to our guest, check out LifeSite's David McClune's report on the new full face mask, which looks like a motorcycle helmet. It's, it's actually not a joke. It's meant to be used to keep people safe from spreading the COVID or safe from co- receiving COVID. Really, it's like a dystopian nightmare that alters your God-given features into a synthetic persona. But this is reality. Have a look at this. Introducing Blank, a full-cover face mask that protects your eyes, nose, and mouth. Thanks to advanced replaceable filters, you're breathing clean air. Midline magnets gently fix blank over the face. Blank adjusts to individual anatomical features of the face and head, making for a supremely comfortable fit. Blank is a thousand masks in one. Its front panel is changeable with any material, color, and texture, depending on the message you put out there. Choose your also check this out. John Droz Jr. has produced a listing of most, if not all, of the court challenges to the election. This list is totally referenced with links to the court filings themselves. It's an amazing resource. You should really check this out. Here's a summary of the findings. The, this database tracks 81 court cases pertaining to the 2020 election. 30 cases are still pending. The Trump campaign is the plaintiff in 45 cases. In only nine of them did judges allow the Trump campaign to present the evidence needed to argue the case fully, according to this database. 
In more than a dozen cases, judges ruled against Trump either due to technicalities or while siding in favor of ballots that lacked legal man legally mandated information. Another 35 cases were brought by Republicans, individual voters, and nonprofits. Nearly half of those remain active. Finally, plaintiffs were able to argue all evidence in only 14% of all tracked cases. I spoke yesterday with an American uniquely suited to dealing with the facts on the election fraud and the court cases themselves. He's a law professor at New Mexico State University. His name is David Clements. He's also a seasoned trial attorney where he tried over 120 cases to a jury and dozens more to a judge. His experience ranges from municipal defense in civil litigation to prosecution of first-degree murder and other high-profile felony cases. When the university president sent out a message to the university condemning the violence at the Capitol and dismissing those concerned about election fraud, Professor David Clements spoke out publicly, even though, as a not-yet-tenured professor, he puts his own job at risk. He told me he's read most of the cases uh, with regard to election fraud. Here's what he had to say. Have a look. Professor David Clements, thank you for joining us in the program. So tell us, uh, one of the most striking things about your initial testimony, which, which of course went viral and, and got you on the Tucker show and all over the place, to my mind, one of the most intriguing parts was where you said that you had read most of the court cases which have been rejected. I think one of the most powerful arguments on the side of those who claim that there was no election fraud whatsoever, basically the media narrative that there's no evidence, no evidence, no evidence, is exactly that, that the court cases were rejected over and over and over again, dozens of times, including by Trump judges. So please tell us what you've got to say for that. What I raised in the video was that the two common objections that we saw in case after case after case was this doctrine of legal standing. And what your viewers need to understand about legal standing, it's, it's effectively a legal fiction. And, and what do I mean by that? That, um, for instance, when we had the state of Texas suing the state of Pennsylvania and went to the Supreme Court, it was dismissed on grounds for standing. And the argument that was being proposed by the Texas AG was pretty straightforward. By virtue of Pennsylvania not following its own laws, you diminished the vote here in Texas because this is a federal election. And so if you don't run your ship a certain way, then our voters suffer. And so for most people out there, the, the layperson, they would say, yeah, that makes sense. That's an actual injury. I think that's a particularized injury. Well, the problem is, is in the, in the land of the law, when, you, when you're talking about the types of, of complaints that were lodged here, they don't consider it a particularized injury. They call it a generalized injury. And if it's a generalized injury, they're not going to hear it. And so many of the cases that were filed there's this confusion because your average everyday voter says, what do you mean there was no harm? I'm a voter. This hurt me. And the law creates this mechanism to where they're not going to even get to the merits of the case. And so that's the primary issue that we saw in lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. There was no opportunity to hear the merits. So that's one example. And 
what you have to keep in mind is that you have cases that were filed in Georgia. You have cases that were filed in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Texas, Nevada. Many of those uh, cases originated in a state district court. Well, guess what? President Trump does not get to appoint anyone to state district courts. So they're not hearing the cases. And when you look at the figures for Trump appointees in federal district courts, they account for 17%. And so people have run with this narrative that somehow every one of these lawsuits have been filed in, in courtrooms with Trump appointees. And that's just not true. Out of the 54 or 60 cases that I looked at, you only had a handful of judges. And they have to follow the law, too. So they're looking at what the Supreme Court has said about, about standing, and they're following suit. Um, so that the, the narrative that's been put out there is really easy to spell if you just look at the facts. One of the things you said there is is really remarkable. Uh, you've looked at uh, over 60 or so cases that have gone on in this election. I think that's probably more than almost anyone else has looked at. So you've seen this, and yet you're convinced that there was indeed fraud. What What brings you to that conclusion? Well, you know, what I do as an attorney is I create proof analysis in all my cases. And so as someone who is just following the, the, the hearings that happened shortly after the results, I started creating a grid and I started looking at the challenges. And then I started looking at the evidence and you can get the court filings themselves. Anything that's been filed in a court of law is public record. And so I started familiar, familiarizing myself with the affidavits. In my video, I talked about having access to 574 pages of sworn documents that have proliferated through the courts. That's just a small fraction. In Michigan alone, for example, there are 234 pages of sworn affidavits just out of Wayne County. And so what you have to do as someone who is you know, concerned with finding out what is true and what is not, you have to look at the evidence. You have to listen to the people. And, and the reason why I'm comfortable with this is as a trial attorney, you know, I, I've tried thousands or not thousands, but I prosecuted thousands of cases and I've tried well over a hundred cases before a jury. What you do is let them make up their own minds. You let them be the judges of the facts, the judges of credibility. And I approach this the same way. It lists, you have to listen to the testimony. You have to listen to it. And so a lot of these witnesses were foreclosed from having a day in court, but we still had public hearings. And what's important about these witnesses is that they filled out affidavits where they risk 10 to 15 years for, for committing perjury if they're caught lying. And what I found, just like in uh, Wayne County, whether it was Fulton County, Antrim County, uh, DeKalb County, uh, Floyd County, Fayette County, all of these counties, I was able to look at these affidavits and also watch them during these public hearings. And the evidence was compelling. And that's born out of my experience as a trial attorney. I know good witnesses when they take the stand. I know coached witnesses. I know witnesses um, that don't know what they're talking about. What I want to push back against is everyone says, well, how could there be a, con a conspiracy of a bunch of judges making sure that judge isn't uh, making sure that Trump isn't elected to office. And I think you can raise that, but you also have to equally raise the, the prospect of why would tens of thousands of people that aren't in positions of power lie about what they saw during the election. 
So who's the greater conspirator? And, and so basically what I tell people is you don't have to take my word for it. Look at the court filings themselves. Look at the witness's testimony. Look at the forensic reports. Look at the statistical data. And either it's going to meet a certain burden of proof for you, the juror, or it's not. I think when you look at the preponderance of evidence standard, which is the standard used in civil courts, all you have to prove is that what is being asserted is more likely than not, 51%. That burden has been met here easily. It's, it's been met sufficiently to at least have a trial on the merits. But um, based on my observation, you basically had a lot of political or judicial cowardice. Everyone was punting the ball in a different direction because they didn't want to, to suffer the political blowback by rendering a decision that could potentially disenfranchise millions of Biden voters. And so everyone was playing this game to ensure that they weren't the one that was going to peel back uh, this corruption. A couple of things you said there uh, that are uh, very um, eyebrow raising. One of them, you said that uh, they could stand to suffer 10 to 15 years in prison for lying on an affidavit. Explain that a little bit. Well, it, it depends on the state, right? Uh, and you also have to keep in mind that we have we live in a, a federalist system. So we have state laws that govern perjury. We have federal laws that govern perjury. Um, so based on a kind of a common law perspective of how perjury works, if you lie under oath and a affidavit is a sworn statement that basically says that I'm competent, I'm of sound mind, I'm over a certain age, Everything that I'm saying here is the truth, and if you find out that I'm lying, I, I'm going to be subject to all the penalties of perjury, and those penalties carry sufficient, or, or not sufficient, but potentially large sentences. So you can go to prison for lying on these affidavits. And you also mentioned that there was tens of thousands. Uh, are there tens of thousands of, of these sworn affidavits, or what were you referring to there when you mentioned tens of thousands? You look at it this way. If you look at Wayne County, the Ellis Trump team was able to procure 234 sworn affidavits in that county alone. And so what you have here are hundreds and hundreds of affidavits coming from each of these counties. And so on average, it, within the five to seven states with dueling electors, in each of those counties, like Maricopa County, hundreds of affidavits. In Pennsylvania, hundreds of affidavits. In Georgia, I think there might be more than any place because that's the place with the video where um, election officials sent people home under this, this false narrative that there was a, a, main, a major water leak in, I think, the State Farm Building. So there were a bunch of people there that filled out affidavits. And when you tally them up, yes, they are in the thousands. A couple of other things. You are a, an attorney, a law professor, now, there were tons of really good lawyers uh, working for the Trump team. Um, when they're preparing for their cases, wouldn't they have known these procedural hurdles that they'd have to battle? Wouldn't they have known the kind of standing that they would need to get? Wouldn't they have known these things? How could they have flubbed so badly? What happened here? I don't think they flubbed, John. I, I think this is the reason why you have to assert your claims is because they had no choice. You have to. Um, everyone acts like on November 5th, they should have just had perfectly completed lawsuits ready to be filed 
Well, no one knew what occurred was going to occur. And so it takes time to assemble lawsuits. And while they were trying to assemble the lawsuits and acquire the evidence that demonstrates it, of course, I mean, you have to keep in mind, the fraud was perpetrated on or about November 4th. And then you have to have your lawsuits heard, filed. And you also have to understand that there were certain dates that they had to kind of beat the clock. For instance, in certain states by November 20th, just 15 days after uh, the election, the Secretary of State in many cases has to certify the results. Um, a couple of weeks after that, the state legislatures have to certify the results. And so there was this clock that was ticking at all times to get this information out there. And most of the politicians and judges were able to work against the clock and, and effectively protect themselves. There was always an argument like this. Well, there's not much we can do now because the Secretary of State certified the results. So what do you want us to do? And it was only the persistent anger of the voters that allowed folks to keep these lawsuits going. So a lot of the doors that were shut were kind of baked into these, these timelines that you had to meet, and they, they came swiftly. So I don't think it was, uh, I don't think there was a poor lawsuit that was filed. Everyone was raising different challenges. The Ellis Trump team were, were filing lawsuits basically saying that, look, your states deviated from your election rules, for instance. You've got the Secretary of State modifying how we're doing the rules with respect to mail-in ballots. That's unconstitutional because the only people that can change the rules is your legislature. So they filed lawsuits saying uh, this is unconstitutional. You had other lawsuits filed by Sidney Powell who, who talked about the Dominion machines and voting software. Um, and so in, in some ways, I just think that the media narrative, you know, mind you, from day one, as soon as the media certified the results of the election, they said there was no fraud. They said that these were the most secure elections in history. So who are you going to believe? Someone that comes out and says that right out the gate? Or are you going to let people have the opportunity to process these lawsuits? And that just didn't happen. The Sidney Powell uh, phenomenon, I guess you could call it, was, was, was very um, disconcerting for a lot of people because she talked about releasing the Kraken. And there seemed to be initially a lot of hope that something was going to happen. And then it seemed to putter out and, and go nowhere. Um, what, what do you make of that and, and uh, of her claims? I think that either Sidney Powell is the attorney that we all believed her to be for 30 plus years. She was the, uh, considered one of the best of the best. She cultivated a reputation where she did not make claims unless she could back them up. And either she is that person or you have to come to the conclusion that she's crazy. And what is that based on? If you do a Google search of her name, um, she's been disparaged in unbelievable ways. So the question that you're really asking someone like myself is, has she earned the benefit of the doubt more so than the media? And I would say, yes, she's a competent attorney. I believe that she has established um, more than enough evidence. And the evidence that I've reviewed in her case is reliable. It would meet any standard in a court of law if it wasn't, if we didn't have cowards acting as the gatekeepers. Um, so Sidney Powell, you know, when you look at some of the cases in her history as a prosecutor, she's amazing and she's heroic. And she, the reason why she's having problems is that she's taking on the deep state. She's taking on 
the heart of the issue. And so opposition to her trying to get to the truth has been galvanized, and they're trying to destroy her. They're not letting us see her evidence because they're scared of what it will reveal. And this isn't a partisan issue. It's not about Trump. It's not about Republicans. It's not about Democrats. If we saw the evidence that I've seen that she's put out there, uh, you would lose faith in so many of our politicians. Okay, so where is America right now? Where are we able to go as a nation? Do we have a free electoral system anymore? Or do you see this election fraud perpetuating itself? Well, if we don't stand up and get angry, but that anger has got to be purposed towards something. So I'm not saying don't vote because by voting, you can keep your eyes on what's going on at election sites. So we need people to vote to keep an eye and fight for every little bit of integrity that's left in the system. But what I tell folks is don't rely on a judge to save your republic. Don't rely on a politician to do that. And if you have a great amount of distrust for those politicians, you should look into recall elections. Get rid of these people that did not fulfill their oaths of office to protect and defend the Constitution domestically. And so it starts there. This has got to be a we the people movement. Then we have a chance because we're not putting our hope in one person saving us. We're putting our hope in the person to the left of us, the person to the right right of us, the people that we could talk to at the dinner table, uh, our coworkers. And we need to get to a critical mass point of 30 to 35% of the population that says, look, we've had enough. You have not been good stewards of the authority that we've delegated to you as the citizen. And we're going to take it back. And that's where I'm encouraged because more people are waking up. But that's where it's got to start. Well, you have done this speaking out at uh, great peril to yourself. Your, uh, this all started because you were responding to your own uh, university president who put out a, a statement very much in, in favor of President Biden and against Trump supporters. Um, and then you made your voice heard. Uh, what ramifications, if any, have you faced or are you facing? Well, it's too soon to say, say right now. I, I can tell you that it didn't really start with my letter Um, or my video response on the 10th of January. It started much earlier than that. I've been a silent observer as someone who's a faculty senator, as someone who has taught classes, has heard from students. And I reached my breaking point because, uh, honestly, I was heartsick on what I was hearing from students, faculty members. And just there's a bully culture from a minority of faculty members that are, they are the most vocal and they go out of their way to politicize everything. And so I had the gall to, to step up and ask for civility back in November. And when I did that, there were a few faculty members that went out of their way to just try to destroy my name and they still continue to do that. So right now in my email, there are emails to faculty with titles like this, uh, David Clements lies on national TV. David Clement's terrorism and social media lies. And so this is cooked in. And every day I'm getting um, basically a, a, an eyeful of these bullies at work. And just to underscore the point, John, one of the particular professors that has been most vocal going after me, he's the co-chair of our faculty <laughs> grievance board. 
So the people, the person that we go to when we have grievances as a faculty is one of the people that's leading the charge to call me a liar, to go after me. In fact, I've had some faculty members that uh, rushed to my defense and committed the grievous uh, sin of having a typo. And this co-chair went out of his way to make fun of them for having typos. This is the person we go to when we are aggrieved. Um, and then I have another faculty member that I had to quote this because it's so disgusting that not only equated Trump voters to white nationalist, white supremacist and racist, he said this in one of his emails, we must see them as the enemies of decency that they are and deal with them unsparingly. They, de- they deserve neither respect nor compromise. So when I talk about what I said in the video, I've only scratched the surface of just how nasty it is in academia, but that's where we're at. Um, so the, the, the pushback has been nasty, um, but overwhelmingly positive for every nasty email or message that I get from what I call the Marxist group of faculty uh, members. I've had thousands of emails and messages uh, from people supporting me. Praise God for that. Um, just from all of us here at LifeSite News, uh, Professor Clements, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for your heroism, your your gumption to stand up uh, for, uh, you know, the great nation of the United States, for freedom, for uh, the electoral process. Thank you and may God bless you. And I wanted to close off today noting that many of you are deprived of the greatest treasure on earth, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Let's offer up some of that pain and suffering today for the repose of the soul of R.S., that pro-life Polish Catholic man who was starved to death in the U.K. hospital, despite the efforts of the Polish government and his family to save his life. He has passed away, and so let's pray for the repose of his soul. And for this concluding, let me start that over again, and for this concluding remark, Thanks to B.A. McCaskey, who sent in a beautiful poem she was inspired to write after witnessing a Catholic kneeling outside the doors of a Catholic church locked uh, because of COVID this Christmas. This, This Catholic was kneeling in the freezing cold on the steps of the church outside the closed doors. The poem is entitled Christmas Visit 2020, and it goes like this. Are you still there, my Jesus? We are so alone. There's a lockdown, Jesus. We have no parish home. Your church is bolted, Jesus. We cannot enter in. Are you still there, dear Jesus, our infant God and King? We kneel upon the church step. We shed a silent tear. Lord, save us lest we perish, for truly do we fear. You calmed the storm, dear Jesus. You cured the sick and lame. End coronavirus. Heal us once again. You are essential, Jesus. O Eucharistic Lord, give wisdom to your shepherds and open wide the door. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we're communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers, 
are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to lifesitenews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.